You are listening to the Joe Rogan Experience Review Podcast. We find little nuggets, treasures, valuable pieces of gold in the Joe Rogan Experience Podcast and pass them on to you, perhaps expand a little bit. We are not associated with Joe Rogan in any way. Think of us as the talking dead to Joe's walking dead. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the JRE Review. This week, we are reviewing Fahim Anwar, Kristen Beck, and Aljamain Sterling. Fahim Anwar is um, a frequent visitor to the Comedy Store. Uh, I've seen him perform there many times over the years from 2016 on. Uh, He's one of my favorites, up-and-comers, absolutely hilarious guy. He has a new special out. Christine Beck former Navy SEAL, uh, gained a lot of public attention in 2013 when she came out as a trans woman and a very interesting person that's been through a lot and um, also published her memoir, which was called The Warrior Princess, a U.S. Navy SEAL's journey to coming out transgender. And last but not least, Al Jermaine Sterling. He's the UFC bantamweight champion right now. Um, Great guy. Awesome attitude for a fighter. Humble. Funny. His conversation with Joe was excellent. And um, yeah, if you're a UFC fan, watch this guy. When he gets you on the ground or gets your back, you are in big trouble. So, as always, go to our website, jrereview.com. Uh, check out our Patreon on there. You can join that. For the, we appreciate the support. You get a cup and t-shirt and some other stuff. And as always, email in with any comments. We like to hear from you guys and gals. We appreciate it. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the Joe Rogan Experience Review. What a bizarre thing we've created. Now with your host, Adam Thorne. This might either be the worst oh, podcast sorry. or the best one Two, of all time. One, go. Okay, so Fahim Anwar, and this is the first pod we're doing in the new studio, so thank you to the listeners for helping me be able to put a studio together for the Joe Rogan Experience Review, and Todd and I are in person doing it, which is interesting because most of the podcasts I do are like remote calling, my co-host is calling from somewhere else, so... Kind of a fun little experiment. Nice to, to be in the goes. room. Yeah. Nice to be in the room with you, buddy. So Fahim Anwar is a comedian I've seen at the Comedy Store many, many times um, over the years, since like 2016 when I lived in L.A. <clears throat> and, you know, I've seen a ton of improvement in this guy's comedy. I don't know exactly when he started. I think he's been in it now over 10 years. But he is a go-getter. Like, he works hard. He's always in there plugging away. And I think it speaks to his kind of, like, engineering background in his mind. Like, he's very kind of systematic about his approach to developing his pieces, is what it seems like. And I think that's why he's getting so good so fast. Well, he's got this um, DIY approach, right? He really, he understands that comedians you know if you want to get your word out there and you want to do the right thing you got to do it yourself it's this entrepreneurial spirit that he has that you can really feel when he he's understanding of like what he needs to do to get out to the people sure though i mean a big 
bit of advice that Joe gave him or recommended is that he kind of needs to be on the road a bit more is what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big thing for comedians, like just to, you know, not only are you learning the country as you go and getting these different styles of audiences, but the practice is like you, you, I mean, you just can't get that any other way. Like you could be at the comedy store every night, but it's still mostly an L.A. crowd with a bunch of tourists. But if you're going around the country, I mean, you go to somebody's town then you're getting that town's energy that you have to play towards. So right. it's, co you know, constantly changing. I just think it makes you so much sharper to do comedy that way. Well, and hearing those other people, hearing the, the crowd, right? That's the, the comedian's way. If you, if you know the crowd is loving it, then you know what to do. And without that practice, you're going to, you, you don't know what people want to hear. Mm -mm. And he was kind of shying away from that, wasn't he? He was trying to, like, pretend that it wasn't a big deal a little bit. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but, but, you know, Rogan has just done this for so long that he knows. Yeah. He knows what it takes for these up-and-coming comedians and what they should be doing. And Rogan also knows that becoming a writer potentially is a trap. And it really gets in the way of your stand-up, which he has been doing. He did it during COVID. So I think Rogan was just testing that, like... Are you riding a bit too much and not getting out on the road? Maybe you should, right. because that's going to make that much more of a difference. Um, I still haven't seen it, his stand-up special yet, but I really loved the format of how he was setting it up. Like, at the comedy store, using all of the rooms, yeah. and making it more of a, like, kind of like a day in the life of the comedy store, rather than, oh, look at my special, which is all kind of glammed up. It's... Pretty interesting. Well, and he didn't—he didn't tell anyone he was doing it that way too, right? So it was all—it was almost a live showing. I don't think he told people that there was actually going to be that he was going to be recording it, right? Well, he did get permission from people um, when, it, like, when he was in there. Like the host that brought him up knew that they was being filmed and the comedy store did he needed permission there but i don't think the audience did right that's what i meant right, the audience which, did not know which makes a big difference i think yeah you know because i've got a feeling if i was watching a show that i knew was becoming someone's comedy special i'd even be inclined to like laugh a little bit harder yeah i don't know if that's really a thing that happens in comedy shows i mean look you're gonna laugh if it's funny or not right but i i think that it kind of could change the dynamic a little bit well, yeah, it's just like when they talk about The Tonight Show and how comedians used to be back in the day, right? There used to be this this system of you got to go, you got to get on the show and then you have to get into a sitcom and you have to, there's these steps that you take, right? right. And having that audience, you know, clap award, like, hey, time to clap, audience. Like, yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. I mean, that seems like what a brutal time to do comedy. There's one way, one path to get forward in your career it's like get on the tonight show and then slowly later it became also get an hbo special and they only made a few carlin always had one you know it was only like the really top guys maybe dennis miller at the time mm. it must have been so much more difficult for comedians back there and and comedies really is way bigger now because of the internet especially because of podcasting You've got so many more comedians that can get to these higher levels, which I think is so much better for the art form, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's just getting more people out there. And people know what to search for, too. It's like it, people want to search YouTube for that stuff. They want to explore. And they, it, it's like when you search YouTube and you find a comedian, you're going to find more comedians depending on who they're talking to, right? Or who what shows up on YouTube. It, it's starting to happen, too. You talk about YouTube. I mean, it was always like get a special together and sell it to Netflix or get a special together and sell it to one of the networks. But then you realize, wait a minute, the network now, in a sense, owns it, which they do. Mm -hmm. And how many eyes are really going to see this? Like how many eyes are you getting on it? Because you have a limited audience as compared to just releasing it to YouTube for free. And I think for up and coming artists, and it sounds like Ari Shafia is doing it that way as well. He's saying, like his last one, he sold to Netflix. But how many eyes got on it? You know, I mean, Netflix has a lot of subscribers, but nothing like the viewership that you can get on YouTube. And really, all you're doing is promoting yourself so that people come and see you live. Because that's really where the money is for these guys. Absolutely. But you're also, you're not getting censored as much either, right? You're not you know, you sell your show to somebody, they're going to change it up. I mean, that's the whole reason uh, Chappelle left, right? He was getting too censored. Mm -hmm. And that, there was a lot of talk about that. Yeah, and I mean, if you're one of the bigger guys, like Chappelle now can sell his special to Netflix and no one's giving him any notes, right? But if you're a brand new comedian and this is your first special, I'm sure there are plenty of suggested notes that they're putting in because they don't want every comedian coming on being super controversial, you know, and potentially causing issues. But at the same time, you don't get to see that comedian's work if you're changing it. It's problematic. It's absolutely problematic. I mean, we need to be able to laugh at jokes. They're jokes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the point of them. <laughs> I mean, censoring jokes to me is is silly. It doesn't make sense to me. I feel, and and Joe talks about this a lot, of just like, we can't, ruin comedy by censoring jokes because of of hurting someone's feelings to I me that's that's just it's scary yeah i don't think that we should at all and here's the thing right if you like comedy but you don't like any risque comedy mm -hmm. there's plenty of comedians out there for you you can go watch jim gaffigan um you know i mean Joe lists these people all the time. There's there's a bunch of like family friendly ones. You don't have to watch the ones that are more shocking. But in a sense, it's what are we supposed to do? Come up with like a, a movie R rating for comedians? Maybe right. we should, right? I mean, they do it for movies, and you know these same Karens that are complaining about how shocking this comedy was and how this person should be canceled. They're not complaining that violent movies are being released. Right. Because they come with an R rating and you don't have to take your kids to it or you don't have to watch it. If you're not into those types of movies, don't watch it. You know, go watch a rom-com and enjoy yourself. But to think that there's one standard for all comedians and you have to just stick to it, otherwise people are going to try and cancel you, that's madness. Yeah, I mean, having these these restrictions on people is just is just making the creativity... And stunting that creativity because... A hundred percent. Yeah. Imagine, imagine talking to an artist that draws kind of like, you know, not necessarily graphic art, but maybe slightly disturbing, dark artwork, right? Where mm -hmm. it shows people like 
struggling mentally or like in pain or like they're trying to get this message across that's like powerful to the artist and then someone coming in and saying that's that's too depressing or it's a little bit scary maybe put a rainbow in there it's like what are you what what are we doing here i mean i remember growing up and listening and watching eddie murphy raw when i was a young kid oh you know i was maybe 12 years old 10 years old Mm -hmm. and those are some of the movies i would watch with my dad i mean thanks dad they were hilarious Mm. it helped me grow as a child yeah, and and <laughs> I remember hearing him young too, and there were some like shocking bits in there. But you know, you're a kid; you you be able to deal with it, and it just it still was just hilariously funny. And watching, I always what I've always loved about comedy is just when you're sat, you know, with your family or your friends or whatever, and the whole room is just dying laughing mm-hmm. from what this one person is saying. It's just such a powerful. Uh, thing to witness i absolutely love it Uh, they talk a little bit about what it's like in austin austin life obviously a lot of comedians have kind of moved over there after covid from la joe's talking about his new club and putting that together i mean i'm really pumped for that and uh see kind of what that does for comedy down there and also just to see how he sets it up i mean he's got so much experience um, in clubs, obviously that doesn't always translate into building your own one, but I've got a feeling that he's really taking his time with this and it's, it's maybe going to be like the new mecca of, um, comedy and the fact that he said, uh, what's he calling it? The mothership or something? The mothership. Yeah. Well, and he's going to, he was saying that he's going to give people, um, health insurance too, Mm. right? Like hook all these new guys up. Some of these younger guys that are up and coming. That's beautiful. Love that. Yeah. Why not? I mean, if he can figure out a way to afford it, I don't really know how that would work because, like, comedians don't necessarily work for the club full time. I guess there's some incentive for them to perform, you know, a certain amount of times in the month in order to qualify for that. Um, Yeah, I don't really know how he's going to set that up. But either way, I mean, Rogan's a man of his word. So if he says he's going to do this... He definitely will. And I'll tell you what that's going to do. is going to attract a lot of young comedians because they're broke for a long time. Like yeah. It's, it's comedy, pretty brutal. Comedy is a young profession, buddy. Yeah, it's a young man's sport <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Though they did talk about all the guys getting into comedy. I really wonder how those people do it. I mean, it can be done, but my God, you would need to be, I mean, you need to be all in to be able to do it you know, older. Just the open mics alone at like 40, it'd be brutal. Yeah, he was saying, somebody started at 37. Who, who was mm. he talking about there? I can't remember. Yeah. I didn't recognize his name. I've probably seen him perform, but I don't know. Oh, they finally brought up the new Top Gun movie. I have to say, that movie is dope. Have you seen this shit, still, still haven't seen it, Dude, buddy. I'm, I'm waiting on the matinee when my kid's in school. It is, it is America, USA all the way. And, and honestly, like, think what you want of Tom Cruise, but as sequels go, especially if you were a fan of the first one, but even if I've watched it with people that didn't even watch the first one, they're a lot younger, and they were really impressed by the movie. Like, it's just a fun movie from start to finish. It's really good. 
I mean, you told me that the soundtrack was just as good as the first one, and I, I still don't believe that. There's no way. It's pretty much <laughs> no the way. same songs, though. That's why. Okay. Yeah, they just did a lot of the same songs All and right. put it in there. Um, oh, they finish up with Louie coming back, and I wanted to touch on this because, you know, there was the Me Too thing with Louie, and uh, he took some time out maybe a year two years i don't know he took a while off and then when he came back somebody filmed a little bit of his stand-up what he was working on and like joe was saying since it wasn't a finished piece you know there was some clunky bits and it just sounded outrageous and people gave him a lot of shit for it and it's such bullshit because this was always how he did his comedy like what what because of um, these accusations, he has to now come back with clean comedy. That doesn't make any sense. If anything, I think he's going to double down and get more outrageous. I, I feel like that might work. <laughs> I mean, I, why not? Look, these creative types, man. You gotta, you gotta let out what's inside of you, right? It's, it's something that has to happen. I mean, if we, as artists, if we don't let out what's inside of us, we're gonna. We're going to feel like crap most days. We have to get that energy out. We have to get those those jokes out, man. Yeah. And and, and do it the way that you did it before. Like, it, it shouldn't have to change just because of this whole thing. Like, he either can come back the way that Louis needs to come back or, you know, he chooses not to. But he's not going to change the way he does comedy. Well, in arts, and it's subjective. They talk about how it's subjective. Like... Some people are going to think it's hilarious and others aren't. So don't watch it. Yeah, don't watch it. If you weren't a fan of Louis before, yeah. you probably won't be afterwards. You're not going to be now. But if you liked him before, you just, I don't know. He He's had enough time off it. This is probably going to be some of his best stuff. I mean, Ricky Gervais just released his special, and it's the best Ricky Gervais I've ever seen. It's excellent. And he's doing it in the face of like all this cancel culture and all this new shit that's going on. And he hits it hard. And it, I thought it was just brilliant. I mean, the way he put it together. Unreal. All right, let's jump over to Kristen Beck. <clears throat> what an interesting person, Kristen Beck. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any other trans-retired Navy SEALs that I've ever heard of. So already, what a journey. Total I mean, badass, really. Of course. I mean, you became a Navy SEAL. you kidding me? And the honesty there was so huge for me. Just like listening to her just tell her story and be honest about how she was feeling and and really just, I guess, the courage that she had to just do what she did. Yeah. I mean, you can tell she'd been searching, right? There was like the spiritual aspect of it. With the planets. Yeah. 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 She's searching for meaning. Right in a world that she was born into that didn't make a lot of sense to her, so it was confusing. And right. good for her for seeking out those answers, however she needed to. I mean, what really, whatever kind of helps on a journey like that, I think is important to discover. I did like her curiosity with history and like trying to figure out, you know, I mean. It, she had that kind of, I've gone down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories online. Type been of there. Thing. Totally yeah. been there. 
<laughs> I think I think we've all been there. Mm. I like when Rogan says he wa- he just wants it to be aliens. Wants that. <laughs> who does it? I know. Who does who sits there and says, I don't want it to be aliens? I think you've just got to be careful that you're not looking too hard for them because then you find them in everything. Right. You know what I mean? It's like getting ultra like super like really superstitious. And and what was Kristen saying about this project Bluebeam? Was she saying that the the governments are going to want to to trick us, right? Like put these these lights in the air and pretend like they're UFOs, even though they're not. Was that what you got out of it? Huh. I don't. I don't even remember her talking about that. It was right. It was right near the beginning. Oh. Um, were they, Were they just talking about like what most people are seeing? And it's like a way to make us think it's UFOs when it's really probably just drones. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was showing lights in the sky to prep us basically for what's to come next, right? Again, a conspiracy theory, right? But saying, a "Hey, good one. yeah, right," like we're gonna prep you guys by showing some lights, and then maybe what? Like, what's the next step? I don't know, dude. I feel like we are super close to the government just being like, "Oh yeah, by the way." His aliens. I hope so. That would be wild. <laughs> what do you think it would do? Do you think we... I, look, we're definitely not going to be as shocked as all this cover-up shit was trying to make us think that we would be. Like, you know, oh, if if they've known, like if the government has known, but they've kept it under wraps and done it well, but didn't want to tell us because we would panic, it's like, I don't think we're at the point now where we're all going to panic. It's going to be wild, exciting. I don't think that it's going to create any sort of mass hysteria. If we can survive COVID, uh, we can True. survive an there are aliens announcement. Do you think it's a do you think it's a half and half? Is it a 50-50 like Republicans and Democrats of people who believe and don't believe in aliens? I have no idea. I don't know if it's a political thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I really can't even figure out what the motivation would be other than if we say they're there maybe we'd be requiring the government to tell us more about it, and they just don't want to deal with it at all. Right. They just want to sit on this technology, figure out how it works, not let any other countries know that we have it, and try and make a ship. But you've also got to think, hey, if we did find a ship, a bunch of other countries probably did too. It's not like aliens would only be visiting America. Right. I mean, it's a dope country, but they'd be all over the place crashing and doing other stuff. So you'd imagine all different countries would be able to have these crafts. And that kind of makes me think, well, are all the countries that good at covering it up? Because they would have to be. For like, It's not like any one country has come out and been like, yeah, we found this ship, just so you know, we got it. Well, and seeing these old, you know, all these, these different... Um old cultures from like 5,000, 6,000 years ago that have these pyramids and have, you know, this, what is that echo that he was talking about? Like when, oh, when they would yeah. clap, like, did you even understand what was going on there with the frequencies? Yeah. So it's like this Mayan, I think it's like a Maya, like a South American pyramid. Yeah. Chichen Itza. Chichen Itza. That's what it was. Yeah. So that has this effect where if you stand in front of it, you clap. And I've seen a video of this. I think the one that they showed, but I saw it previously. If you clap or make any kind of loud noise, by the time it hits the top of the pyramid, they're unlike the pyramids in 
um, Egypt, Egypt that are just a point, they have like a building on top, like a small little, you know, it looks like a, uh, I don't know what you would like call it. Like a pillar it. or something. Some, a pillared thing with a roof. Mm-hmm. And it creates, it changes the sound and it comes back sounding just like this particular bird that's there that the temple is named after. How in God's name did they figure that out? The acoustic technology, I'd be curious to know, could we... How could you do it now? Yeah. I, I wonder if we can. I wonder if, like, our sound engineers and computer, you know, shit can, like, figure out how to do that and turn it into a buildable design. Because if we don't even have that technology now, that raises some questions. And not only that, they talked about how in uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphics, they have hieroglyphics showing all the planets in our solar system as we know them and you wouldn't even be able to like there's no way they could have seen those so how the hell did they know that was there clearly they were an advanced civilization yeah or you know or you could say that it was just a random hieroglyphic and maybe they guessed with those numbers i mean that's kind of harder to say but i mean also kind of plausible right i mean if there's enough hieroglyphics in front of you we're talking tens of thousands there's there's a lot of interpretation that you can play with it and i don't know that one just seems pretty difficult to dismiss uh, well, I mean, Kristen was also talking about having subways underneath the, the pyramids. Did you hear that? Like there was some, some tunnels or something. But again, I, you know, I haven't looked into that. But I, I remember thinking, was it Ancient Aliens? You know, oh, great show. Love that. But have you heard of this where the, the actual, the old pyramids are actually power plants? Oh, have yeah. you heard this theory? That's a fun theory. It is a cool theory to look into. Dive into that, guys, because it is crazy to think that they had free energy back then. I mean, it's not that crazy, really, but it's amazing. If that, if that was actually happening back then. The only issue I have with that is let's say it kind of mechanically would all make sense. Where were they... How are they storing any of the energy, and how were they? Like, I don't think that there was like any sort of historical reports of them having lights or vehicles that drove themselves. I mean, what would they even be using all that power for? Especially if it was designed to be a power plant that size, you would assume that they had a massive need for a ton of power. Right. What were they using it on? I don't know, but I, I thought it was wireless. I thought it was wireless energy. Like it, the the top of the pyramid was actually creating this this wireless energy that was um, being transmitted out. But it only went so far, right? Right. But where we uh, like, I'm just wondering where are the machines? Yeah. Like, and what did they think, need it for? What, you would think that there would be some left. I mean, if it's electricity, then there's metal components in these devices that they're using that need to be powered. And, okay, it's what, pyramids are like 4,000 years ago or five? I think it's five, yeah. Okay, so 5,000. You'd think that there would be some bits of things. I mean, if there's like pots left in the, you know, tombs, you, you'd imagine there would be like an iPod in there or whatever technology they had. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, I need my smartphone when I go to the next world. <laughs> We're just not finding it. So I'm like, huh. It's one of those things. It's, it's the same thing with aliens. You want it to be true. It's probably not. But it, it's just like it, it's like yes, I want this. To Why be true. do we want it to be true? 
Maybe I just want it to be true. No, no, but I mean, what uh, I think we all do. I think it's silly to pretend that we're the only civilized and advanced society. I mean, in, in my mind, we're we're maybe we're not. I mean, there's there's been other civilizations. I think that have come before us. I, I mean, we can't make the pyramids now. We probably shouldn't go off on this tangent. But no, 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 it's a good point. I mean, look, but here's the problem I have. If if we just stop today, like we forgot everything, the next generation, we all get wiped out, there's a bunch of kids left, they grow up into this world surrounded by these skyscrapers and all this technology, but they don't know how it works, so they're just living more feral, but they've got, you know, bits of technology around them that maybe within their lifetime they kind of figure out how to use. Do you think in 5,000 years there would be enough evidence of the change that we had made? I mean, obviously, most of the buildings would crumble away. A lot of the houses would. Like, a lot of this shit would get lost. But there would still be enough archaeological stuff. You would think. You would think. But with that many years, I mean, with the small pieces of technology that we do have, wouldn't that just get turned into sand? Probably. I, we are the last people to know. I mean, we can't even fathom that amount of time. It's way long. We can't fathom it. Yeah. Even just 5,000 years. I mean, you can fathom 5,000 years, I guess, but within 5,000 years, anything that they had, you would think would just turn into dust. Well, look at it this way, right? So one thing that we definitely have is those from the pharaohs, those cool, like, head things they wore that were all gold, right, right. that they're buried with. Right. Well, if they had all this power, wouldn't you think there would be, like, some sort of Bluetooth headset in there or... You know, a button that you push for, like, shades to come down. Or, like, they have power, right? So what are they using it for? Yet those, all the artifacts that we find, none of them look like they run on any power. There's, like, some loose references to them having light. Yeah. And you see that in the higher Or batteries, like, right? Yeah, they have some sort of basic battery yeah. with, like, a pole. And then there's kind of, like, a light on the end. That could make sense. But you don't need a pyramid's worth of power to charge that thing. I mean, you can kind of do it with, like, some sort of acid-base reaction. Or I, I really don't know how batteries work, but you don't need a lot for it. It's like a potato clock. Once again, it's just me wanting to, <laughs> it's me wanting to believe that there was this Keep doing amazing it. civilization. Keep so, doing it. I, just anyway. like, I like to be a little skeptical because, of course. you know, Kristen was also talking about those giants. Right. giant skeleton bodies 15 feet tall that the Smithsonian smashed and I'd seen references to these types of articles before but it just doesn't make any sense th- to me that they would destroy that and yeah what's the reasoning behind that and we don't really have even in legend a lot of stories of giants right there was um Andre <laughs> <laughs> okay there's Andre I mean, you have the Cyclops in uh, the Odyssey by Mm -hmm. Homer. Mm -hmm. So that's a big story, you know, from the past. Then you have, I guess, David and Goliath. But I don't think Goliath was like 15 feet tall. He was just like a big ass dude. Um, You know, there's just not a lot of mythical stories of like us coming up against, you know, an entire race of people that were... 15 feet tall. Well, and that why, I know of. why would we hide? Why would we hide that? That's what I didn't understand. Yeah, I think it would be um, that would be like the coolest shit you could ever have in your museum. 
I don't imagine you'd smash it. But people believe in all sorts of crazy stuff, right? I mean, like Rogan was saying, he believed in those worms in the video. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to get roped into these things. You got to be careful, and you got to take a step back sometimes. But they are really fun to play with and think about. Lastly, I want to discuss her working on the Iron Man project. How dope is that, that we're actually trying to put those suits together? I mean, ultimately, that's pretty scary because then what do we have? Like a bunch of different countries, military, just have invincible suits? Yeah, scary. But think of the practical uses for a lot of other things, right? It's like um, disabled people that can't, like, move well. Now they have a suit and they'll be potentially fully functional. Or, um, I, I mean, it, it, you could go across the board with it, right? You're in, like, you snowboard and you have to have your avalanche equipment on with you for, like, if you get buried. Yeah, right. transceiver. So if there was some sort of suit that could, like, melt you out of the snow or, I don't know, fly you away from an avalanche. Well, it, look, if you have those things, they're always going to get used for they could potentially get used for warfare. Obviously, that's what they're the main reason, which is a little scary. But the autonomy in warfare that they were talking about is what got me thinking, like, holy cow, people might not even go into war anymore. It's just going to be this autonomous thing that they have drones for and they have, which we already have. Right. Yeah, it's pretty automated. Like most of It's war like a now video is, game. Yeah, it's like robots doing it. That's scary. The War of the Robots. That that'd be quite an interesting movie. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's kind of scary stuff, really. It's almost like the more you learn, the scarier it gets. Like you really probably don't want to know what the military are up to at any given time. I know. It I don't want to know. No, it freaks me I'd out I'd rather I'd rather stay away. I'd I would rather be engaged in human life rather than you know, on my day-to-day things in my small town. Yeah. It is, as silly as that sounds, um, you know. Yeah, too much news is not good for your health and possibly too much information. I know that sounds like the most ignorant thing you could say, but there's certain information that is going to make you panic, right? You're going you're gonna to think of the worst things out of it and go, nah, I don't want any of this. I'm staying away. All right, let's jump over to Aljamain Sterling. Well, UFC bantamweight champion. I really like this guy's attitude. I actually thought he was quite funny too. Uh, humble guy from what it sounded like. I I always like to hear that in the champions. You know, even if they're like talking shit before their fight, so they talk a lot of shit to their opponent to like psych him out. Does he though? No, he doesn't. No, he but doesn't. I'm, but I'm just saying as a general rule, I don't mind when they do that. But when you come in for an interview... You know, when you sit down and you're just being you, it, that's when you get to hear who they are, you know? I mean, Kobe Covenant is known for, like, talking a lot of shit, but he's supposed to be a super nice guy in real life. So he pushes the envelope of the entertainment portion of mixed martial arts, which I'm sure they stole from WWE wrestling, you know? But at the end of the day, they can be cool, humble, nice people, too. So this guy seems like he's more like that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. <clears throat> and if you are not familiar with him as a fighter, he's the kind of guy that if he gets you down and gets on your back, you are fucked. I mean, his control on the ground and ability to rear naked choke you to death is like, it's just next level. He's an absolute savage. I just love seeing dudes that are 135 pounds that are all muscle. It's just insane to see how strong these people are and they weigh next to nothing. Yeah, and they would <laughs> they would absolutely wreck you too. Like it would be so hideous. Like you wouldn't even know what was happening. And I always hate hearing that when you you see some like big guy that works security somewhere at a bar and maybe he's like, you know, way into like 200 pounds, like big big dude. But his training is going to be nothing like these sorts of champions. And they want to say things like, oh, well, yeah, 135-pound guy, though. I'd be able to smash him. No chance. No way. I don't believe it at all. Yeah. They'd crawl up your back like a spider monkey and strangle you to death. Yeah. <laughs> After punching you 50 times in the face before you even moved. It's just such a ridiculous type of, of talking. Like, I don't know. It bugs the hell out of me. They discussed a lot of the previous champions and how they're still fighting. And I did not realize that Dominic Cruz had been fighting as long as he had. Now, I know you're not super familiar with with uh, MMA, but Dominic Cruz has been around f- for 15 years at least, fighting at the highest level that you can. Um, they even said that he's only lost fights during title um the title fights, which are ones where you win the championship. So that's the only times he's lost. He's against, made, it, made it all the way to the top. Against the very best people. They're the only people he lose to. And he's also an excellent commentator because he knows so much of the sport. He knows how to break it down so well. He's an excellent shit talker. I mean, it's, it's quite phenomenal what some of these fighters are able to do. And this isn't the sort of sport that you can stay in for very long. I mean, the damage to your system, the window of fighting that you have is not that big, especially if you don't start till later. You just can't, you can't go for long. Like, you get into it in your 30s, like, good luck. You might have five, six years. I mean, this is why people like Nate Diaz and Nick Diaz, uh, you've heard of them, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they, they got in in, like, their late teens. So they've just been able to really i just fight a long time which is incredible i mean i just love the discipline in it you know they rogan talks a lot about discipline and whether it's for fighting or comedy or just life in general like just you know whether you're young or not having that discipline for every day to be training and doing jujitsu and doing mma is like that's inspiring, man. No matter who you are or what sport you're in, it is inspiring to see that in a fighter. You know, he's talking about his neck pain and how he's going through all these different, um, you know, rehabilitations for that and how he only drinks, you know, solemnly, but when he does, he, he gets a little crazy, mm-hmm. right? We can all relate to that. Well, you need a release. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine if you're working that hard all the time. Like, you need to have some fun, too, but you right. definitely can't have too much fun if that's your if that's your primary goal. Is like you have to be basically a super athlete, training all the time. And this is what's nuts about it. I mean, he talked about, I think he was at 10th Planet training some jiu-jitsu, 
and he's just rolling with a guy, like warming up. It's like a flow roll, which is supposed to be the calm roll just to get a warm up in. And this guy dives in for like a heavy guillotine and cranks his neck and really messes him up. That's the, like the ultimate danger is like it's not that these guys just have to get in the gym and be the best and ready to fight, but potentially they're going to hurt themselves all the time while they're training. Any given day, you just don't know. You move wrong, you twist wrong. I mean, I guess that's the same as a lot of sports. You know, a lot of athletes are training all the time and can hurt themselves. But, I mean, these guys are getting punched and kicked and strangled. Right. So the danger factor is so much higher. Yeah. I mean, that's why you have to train every day, though, too. I mean, you can't not train every day. Mm -hmm. It has to happen. That's why I'm liking hearing more of this, like, light sparring that people are doing and, you know, training that's not taking so much heavy impacts. I, I don't think you can start off that way because you've got to prepare yourself to, for the cage. But if you are a veteran of the sport and you've been in the cage a bunch of times, you've had a bunch of fights, you know, you know how to strike, you know, how, and you're just making little adjustments to your own game, it's probably a much smarter move to kind of minimize the dangerous impact that you take before fights because if you're doing a training camp which is i don't know how long they do it for like six to eight weeks something like that it, if you injure yourself during that time you get you're getting no money right and you've still got to pay for the camp and you've put all that time in it's it's like the the balance between being really careful to keep your body strong and get ready for the fight and also making sure that you get the best training that must be so nerve-wracking. Making sure you don't get hurt. Of course. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it. I couldn't commit to that. I don't have enough discipline for it, buddy. No way. <laughs> no. I'll just talk about it. I'll just talk about it and It's inspiring, it. though, which is, is nice. And that's okay, too. You can be inspired by people that you... And that, like, you know, you watch Cameron Haynes run 240 miles or whatever he does in the Dude. Moab 240. <clears throat> it's like, yeah, I'm super inspired by that. But you know what I'm inspired by? It, for me to run maybe 10 miles twice a week. That's enough. Something like, you, can, uh, you can get to. Yeah. So you see, you see what's possible and then you just ask yourself, can I push a little bit more within the means and comfort of my own life? Right, we don't all have to become a Goggins with this, because it's too much. Right, but it's nice to just be a little bit inspired. Right, to remind yourself, ah, I could do a little bit more. I could, I, and I'll, I'll tell you that right now, I could run a little bit more. I'll occasionally, like you said, you ran a mile yesterday. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll get on the treadmill, run a mile, but I'm not pushing myself really. Like, I'm not running further than that. It's one of those things, though. If you if you do it every day, right, it's that discipline. That, It'd be easier. Yeah. And just seeing, you know, the effects of, you know, being able to run a seven-minute mile. And then if you take a few months off, all of a sudden that extra minute is happening. Like, you're running a nine-minute mile or an eight-minute mile instead of that seven-minute mile. If you take even a few weeks off, at least for me. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's, and so doing it every day, though, you're going to feel like a champion, even if it is only one mile. It yeah. doesn't take much, man. That's what's insane about the 240 miles that Cameron Hayes was doing or <clears throat> some of these guys. Obviously, Goggins is is incredible, but I wonder how many miles uh, 
you know, most of these fighters are doing a day. You know running is in the regiment. It's running's, be. running's a big part of it. A lot of them do a lot of bike work as well because uh, it's less impact on your knees over time, but a ton of them run. And you've got to. It's Running is like the sheer guaranteed way of keeping your endurance up. Like it's it's just one of those things that you want to have in your regiment to keep your endurance at like that type of level of high. I mean, it, it's super important. In the intervals, right? Like having the sprint and then the pause, the sprint and the pause. Oh, yeah, the high-intensity workouts. Absolutely. Of course, they're doing those as well, and they're very important as well. And they're doing five-minute rounds. So they get in the cage, and maybe it's just like sprawling and take down the fence, and, but it's kind of getting your timing and energy up, keeping moving for that whole five minutes. I mean, since 92, when the UFC came out, the training regiments compared to today have changed so much. It's unbelievable. I mean, they've really got this stuff down. And, and also, this sport has changed so much. I mean, Rogan talks about it. Like, it's so much better now. Even the worst fighters today would probably beat the best fighters of, you know, almost anywhere in the 90s just because of the standard of training. You know, it's the just stamina. come so far. Exactly. There's been so many changes. Obviously, that will start to slowly plateau because there's only so far that you get, but there's always going to be improvements. There's, they're always going to figure out newer, better ways to, like, feed them, nutrition, health. The surgeries are going to be a big thing. The better the surgeries get, the quicker people can jump back and recover and get back fighting again. Um you know, it's just these, like, slow injuries over time that take out most of the fighters, especially, like, back and neck problems. It's brutal. I mean, this guy's already having neck problems. I mean, they kind of say that even if you just go to get your black belt in jiu-jitsu and you were never, like, a competitive tournament guy, but you are just in there training, there's almost no way to get away with not having neck injuries because your head has to get pulled on, I don't know, 10,000 times before you get close to your black belt it's probably more than that it's like necks are just not strong it's like a flimsy bit like there's no, <laughs> no matter, way around it no matter what you do no matter what you do <laughs> i wanted to end up with joe's encouragement to starting a podcast um so Aljamain has one and he's not sure like how he can fit it in his time or make it work and joe just said keep it simple do it one hour a week if you got time to play a video game or watch a movie or YouTube for an hour a week, which almost everyone finds time to do it. You've got time to do a podcast. Like, for example, I've done this one now for five, probably coming on six years. I think it's around five years, but a little over. Um, But I've just kept it as simple as possible. I don't do five a week like Rogan. I just do one, sometimes do two. 45 minutes I keep the planning and editing to a minimum and and I don't necessarily do that because I'm lazy or I don't want to give a, a good show I just do it because I need to one always enjoy it and two make it really comfortable in my life so I can do all the other things that I'm exploring and that's the important thing people just want you to talk like they want Al Jermaine to come on and discuss what he knows about fighting and give it breakdowns. I mean, he's a UFC champion. What better person to do it? He doesn't necessarily have to take a bunch of notes and over 
uh, produce it and do all these other things. I mean, that's a nice touch, but not if it makes it so that he doesn't want to do it at all, which is pretty common. People overthink what it takes, I think, sometimes to do a podcast. Absolutely. Well, and you always said consistency is really the thing, and he knows what consistency is like with his training. So if he could just get into that regimen, just like anything, he'll be fine. He already has that in him. Yeah, it's not like he's not already a super disciplined person. But when I talk about the consistency, it's not like that was my idea. That's always been Rogan's. Yeah. When he talks about podcasts and what made his you know, in a lot of ways, really popular from the start is he's super consistent and creates a shit ton of content. And on top of how interested in it, it is to listen to. I mean, he set the bar in a way that I don't know if anyone's going to be out of touch for many years. He's so far ahead of anyone else in the podcasting space. And that's why I don't shut up about him. So there we go. All right, guys, that is it for this week. Thank you for joining in. Thank you, Todd, for being here. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, buddy. Yeah, that's all. Cheers, folks. Later.